0: Chris Friedman of Adult Side Broker. And welcome to Adult Side Broker Talk, where each week we interview one of the movers and shakers of the adult industry. And we give you a tip on buying and selling websites. This week we'll be speaking with Jimmy Broadway of Severe Sex Films. Would you like an easy way to make a lot of money? Send sellers or buyers to us at Adult Site Broker through our affiliate program, ASB Cash. When you refer business to us, you'll receive 20% of our broker commission on all sales that result from that referral for life. You can make $100,000 or more on only one sale for some of our listings. Check out ASBCash.com for more details and to sign up. At Adult Site Broker, we're proud to announce our latest project porn.com. You'll find articles from industry websites as well as mainstream publications from around the world. It's designed to raise awareness of our industry's plight in the war on porn and the numerous attacks on our industry and online free speech by hate groups, the religious right, and politicians. You'll find all that and more at thewaronporn.com. We've also added an events section to our website at AdultSiteBroker.com. Now you can get information on B2B events on our site, as well as special discounts reserved for our clients. Go to AdultSiteBroker.com for more details. Now let's feature our property of the week that's for sale at AdultSiteBroker. We're proud to introduce a successful and growing OnlyFans agency. They've been in business less than a year and a half, but they've experienced tremendous growth. The company was founded by two brothers. In the last year, they've done over $5 million in gross profit. They have over 130 full-time Filipino employees with affordable salaries. The strategy of the company is to acquire large volumes of creators, put them through their automated onboarding process, and then they decide which creators are worth keeping. Out of over 2,000 in the last year, they pared down to the 300-plus creators they have now. They focus on 30 to 50 high-revenue-producing creators. The top one is generating $120,000 in monthly revenue. There are many high-potential creators who currently do between $5,000 to $75,000 a month. These creators can be scaled through detailed focus and know-how, not to mention additional marketing. The founders have created scalable systems and automations through sustainable processes. The whole company is very well structured. The founders currently only work about an hour a day due to their systems. There's a great potential to further develop the revenue from each creator, thus multiplying the revenue and profits of the company. The main marketing is TikTok, with some Instagram sprinkled in, which leaves amazing opportunities using other media and buying ads. Only $13.5 million. Now time for this week's interview. My guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk is Jimmy Broadway of Severe Sex Films. Jimmy, thanks for being with us today on Adult Site Broker Talk. Thank you for having me. We've been talking about doing this for a
1: while and glad we uh,
0: were able to make it happen. A little while, huh? Jimmy Broadway is the real deal when it comes to true hardcore fetish performances and film production. He began his adult career behind the camera in 2005, and a year later started performing for passive art studios when they needed more male talent. He's since gone on to perform in hundreds of scenes, primarily in a number of fetish niches. Getting into the business after the age of 40, Broadway has embraced the cuckolding niche, having appeared in over 200 scenes in that fetish as the cuckold husband of some of the top female talent in the adult industry. But cuckolding certainly isn't the only fetish Broadway plays with. In fact, his list of don'ts is far shorter than his list of fetishes he's engaged in on camera. Married to director, editor, and dominatrix D. Severe, who previously was on Adult Side Broker Talk, together they own Severe Sex Films a broad-spectrum fetish films production company. Working in the fetish world means different things to different people, but it's all about authenticity, safety, and respect for Broadway. Both Jimmy and his wife work as directors and performers, creating scenes that meet the needs of a very discerning audience. Performing and directing some of the most authentic hardcore fetish material in the industry, Broadway has made quite a name for himself in both the fetish and adult film communities. He's received a number of award nominations for his work, including four for AVN Niche, Performer of the Year. At Severe Sex Films, Dee and Jimmy bring their experience as mainstream independent filmmakers and lifestyle BDSM players to the world of adult entertainment. The company's lines include an educational series called Kink School, which offers instruction in BDSM and fetish play. Their release, Sybil Troy is Vicious... Love that name. Received an AVN award for the best BDSM release while corrupted by the evils of fetish porn. And Mindfucked, a cult classic, won back-to-back XBiz awards for fetish release of the year. Charlotte Sart, Filthy Angel, and Perversion and Punishment 13 were both honored by the Alt Porn Awards as best Gonzo video. Severe Sex Films also features Treacherous and Corrupted, which were screened at the King Film Festival. They have also received numerous award nominations from AVN, XBiz, the TEAs, the Alt Porn Awards, and XRCO. Okay, I got through that. So, Jimmy, how did you get started in adult films?
1: Dee and I started together, and we had been going to these parties at a local fetish club, and... The owner of the club had always said to D, if you ever want to come and work for me, you know, I always need good dominatrixes. And, you know, he recognized her skill. And we hit a, a kind of a slow patch and talked it over and said, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So she went to work for him and found that working as a pro dom in a house really wasn't her thing. But while we were there, he found out that we were independent filmmakers. Uh, We belonged to a a co-op in L.A. that produced over 60 short films over the time it was together. And just everything from commercial spoofs to comedies, dramas, sci-fi, you know, whatever anybody in the group could come up with, we would get together and shoot it. So John, the owner, you know, found out about this and he had done two DVDs at that point and wasn't real happy with the directors on either of them. And asked us, hey, you know, would you be interested in directing a film for me? And we said, sure, why not? Let's do it. So we did. The first one we ever did for Passive Art Studios was the headmaster's office. And it was basically a ripoff of a Czechoslovakian caning video that he had found online. Uh, we added a little backstory to it because uh, the one he found online was basically just 45 minutes of girls getting beaten in Czechoslovakia. But uh, we, we did, a little, did a little bit of a setup and a little bit of a wrap up on it. And uh, it was interesting because we brought in one of the photographers from our, our film group to help shoot it and very quickly realized that that was probably not such a good idea. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, was he wondering. Was, yeah, he was. I mean, it's funny because we picked him. Because he had done a short film about an office scenario where the office manager has a remote controlled butt plug
0: <laughs> and, and
1: is just torturing this poor guy around the office. But it wasn't a porn video. It was, you know, it's like they showed the plug and then, but you never saw it go in. You never saw any nudity. You just saw all the reactions to it.
0: But that was hilarious.
1: Oh, it was a great short. But we figured, okay, he's pretty open minded. He's. And like five minutes into this, the video we're shooting, we look over at him and he's just like all the blood is drained from his face. He's like wedged in this corner. And, you know, if he could have gotten (laughs) out of there, he probably would have. But he's he stuck it out. And after that, we decided, you know, we should look around the community and see who's got some (laughs) camera skills and bring those people in, which we did. We still used the equipment from the film group, which was nice because, you know, going out and buying everything we needed to do a full production at that point wasn't possible. But one of the other benefits to come out of that whole situation was when we got out and found some people with some skills. Uh, There was a live performance troupe in L.A. shortly before this time called Severe Society, And they had kind of tapered off. Some of the group members had moved on to other things. And one of the founding members was the boyfriend of one of the other dominatrixes at the studio. So Sal and I hung out together and Dee and Mirella hung out together. And we got to be friends and everything. He directed a bunch of stuff for us. But through that whole connection, we were able to adopt the Severe Society name and we just added a films to it. And that became our, our first production company. So we did did stuff for Passive Arts for two about two years and then realized that John was, if, if we wanted to keep not killing him, and I hate to say this because unfortunately, <laughs> several years after this, uh, one of his other employees did kill him in a, a very tragic... Uh, oh, shit. Yeah, it was a bizarre murder uh, and they found the guy in the bushes across the street. He, he killed John and his, uh, his, he had a wolf hybrid dog, killed them in the studio, and then went across the street and just set the place on fire and watched it burn. And they found him in the bushes there. Uh, but anyway, backtracking a little bit, if, if we wanted to remain on conversational with him, we couldn't keep working for him because he was just a, a, a terrible boss. So we went off on our own. Uh, right about that time, uh, Howard Stern was doing a lot of stuff with tickling on his his radio show. So we said, okay, you know, there was this thing called Clips for Sale that we had done a couple of stores for for Passive Arts on. So we set up our own our first store on Clips for Sale. Uh, it was a tickle store, still there, and we just started doing, you know, pretty girls getting tickled, and did very well with it. Uh, Opened up a couple more stores, uh, one related to pegging, one related to hardcore BDSM and one related to more sexual stuff and uh, just kind of took off from there. A couple years down the line after uh, we got the AVN, all the award nominations for Treacherous, that got us a conversation with Howard Levine at Exile, who uh, you probably remember. And that led to a distribution deal with Exile and a rebranding from Severe Society to Severe Sex.
0: Very good. So which do you prefer, writing, directing, or performing, and why?
1: Uh, it's kind of a mood thing. There are days when it, I just love to be a performer and just go in there and just be told what to do and have fun and just just let go of everything. I mean, I love the writing aspect of it. I mean, we don't do full blown word for word scripts on anything, but depending on what the fetish is and what we're going for, we'll have either some dialogue scripted or at the very least an outline. And I love just, you know, just I'll be chatting with a friend of mine on Twitter and she'll say, oh, I I, you know haven't done clown porn in a while, so I'll. Okay. And I'll just say, okay, clown porn is, I'll just come up with a scenario and write some lines and everything. Or especially like with the cuckolding stuff and the, the taboo stuff is just coming up with the, the setup and the, the concepts and, and moving the story along that. I really enjoy doing that. And then, you know, directing is fun too. It's a completely different mindset. You've got to be on top of everything, you got to be paying attention to everything you get to craft these little worlds for half an hour to an hour and things that happen in those worlds are what you decide they want to, you want them to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of mood are you in today?
1: Well, it's, it's almost 10 o'clock right now. uh, Where you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, I'm in kind of a, a finish my glass of wine, wind down and, (laughs) and get some sleep mood. But uh, in general, lately, I've been kind of itching to get, get a little more into the performing side of it. So I'll probably be doing some of that uh, in the next
0: week or two. Okay. What's your favorite fetish to shoot and why?
1: I'd say probably either the cuckolding or the taboo just because of, of the stories. Like I said, it, it's, you're creating this little world and you're making the the various people in there do things and our our taboo stuff is a bit
0: unusual how so
1: uh, well it's it, it's not the traditional you know creepy stepdad taking advantage of, of his stepdaughter kind of thing or brother and sister you know you, oh you you got to be in arkansas for that yeah but for for us we we take the taboo and and it always has a flip in it so it, it starts off with the father because the only taboo we really shoot is stepdad, stepdaughter, just because of the talent pool, we have access. And I mean, we don't want to go full bore into the whole taboo world and, and create a ton of it. So we managed to get enough of it done just within that scenario. So we start with the stepdad in charge, but at some point, Something happens that gives the stepdaughter the power, hmm. and and there's that flip. So it's not as creepy, or and you're not taking advantage of someone who is powerless because at one point both of you have power, and at one point both
0: of you are powerless. Interesting. Yeah, wow, that sounds cool.
1: So it yeah it adds another dynamic to it, and it's it's funny because you some of the the women we brought in to shoot it. There is. They figure, oh, it's going to be the same as all the other taboo, and then they read the script, and and they're like, oh, this is kind of cool. I don't get to be the one in charge that often. Yeah. Nice, huh? Yeah.
0: Very good. Very good. It's good to be different.
1: Oh, I've been different for a long time, so (laughs) I'm I'm used to it.
0: I love it. I love it. So you shoot quite a few fetishes. Is there anything on your no list, and why? In terms of
1: stuff. I'm willing to shoot as either a director or a crew person, as long as it involves consenting adult humans. I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah. Well, I know your feelings about animals are the same as mine, so I know, and I know you wouldn't even go there. And of course, that also crosses the boundaries of illegal. So.
1: Yeah. Well, in some places, in other places, unfortunately, it's not illegal. In the states. Uh, yeah, there there are a couple of states where. Because it's a state by state thing.
0: They're probably Republican states, but anyway, go ahead.
1: No, they're, they're states that just <laughs> never got around. Mostly, uh, and I don't know off the top of my head which ones, but they're, I, I seem to remember they're, they're mostly the more rural states with a, a lot of agriculture in them. I was going to say
0: with a lot of sheep. <laughs> yeah,
1: but they've never, they just never bothered to act into law that you can't do this. I mean, it's generally accepted that, yeah, you can't, but nobody stood up in the legislature and said, we need a law that says you can't fuck sheep.
0: (laughs) You got to admit it would be entertaining to watch that session. At least something would be entertaining watching uh, the politics. The less politics I can watch now, the better. Ever ever since the, the September 6th thing, I agree with you. I've tuned out. I've really tuned out, and Trump keeps trying to pull me back in. That motherfucker, and my Twitter feed now has some Trump stuff, but it's mainly lock him up stuff. So,
1: but anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so <laughs> bestiality is a definite hard no. Anything with underage people is a definite no. Anything that's actually non-consensual, I am fine with consensual
0: non-consent consensual. non You mean the material is non-consent, but they are consenting to it. It comes up more in
1: lifestyle situations than on film, because obviously in film, everything is discussed ahead of time just to make sure you shoot it. So you're talking about like BDSM? Uh, BDSM, but also, you know, abductions and rape fantasy, you know, things that are portrayed as being non-consensual, but Going into it, the people involved say, okay, here's, you know, I'm going to give up my control to you. You know, I I want you to do whatever you want to do. I don't want, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to have control. But also, as responsible players, they set up, you know, signals and safe words. If they really
0: take a, a wrong turn, they can stop it. The only problem with those is you're going to have problems with the processors these days.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, it's, you know, what you do in a live scenario, in a lifestyle scenario, and then also what you do on film. And unfortunately, there there is a gap between those two. And a lot of it, I mean, some of the restrictions now are just getting so ridiculous.
0: True. And a lot of that stuff you just can't publish. It's real simple. Okay. If you publish it. Then your website's going to going to get red flagged by Mastercard and Visa, and you're in trouble. I and mean, I'm sure you know what those things are. Unfortunately, they they keep adding to the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to thank our friend at the New York Times for that.
1: Anyway, well, it's also not not even Mastercard and Visa. A lot of it is, and we've we've kind of discussed this on on, on the message boards and stuff. It's that. MasterCard and Visa set a policy, and then the processors interpret that policy and pass that, their interpretation down to the platforms. The platforms read the interpretation and have to go, okay, how do we comply with this and come up with their own set of rules? And a lot of it's a little nebulous.
0: And almost all of it lacks context. Absolutely. I had a client who really hadn't, well, he was considering selling his site, but all of a sudden he lost his processing because some nut who happened to be a model for him reported him for something that he didn't do that was really bad. And I believe it was child porn, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, he lost his processing. And then he came to me and he said, well, I better sell now, and I said, "Well, I got bad news for you. It's going to be impossible to sell without processing." And he said, "Well, I was afraid you were going to say that. I'm in the process of of working on getting new processing. In the meantime, why don't you see who'd be interested?" So we got it done, but it was uh, it was a tough situation, and he, he lost his processing because of you know a report that was false. Mm-hmm. But
1: I mean, I, I've got a real good friend of mine director and, and shooter living back east now, but uh, we lived to get, we lived in the same neighborhood in LA for a number of years. Uh, his name is Nate Licker and he cannot use his stage name on his content because his last name, his stage name last name is Licker and that's a banned term.
0: Oh, jeez. I guess it depends on how you spell it, right?
1: Yeah. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been his, his stage name for several decades now. It's who he's known by. It's who his 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 viewers and his fans know. It's like okay, that that's Nate's stuff.
0: Did he change it to Nate beer or Nate wine? Or I'm sure those are banned too, probably.
1: Yeah, but we. I mean, we had one. It started as a custom video, and actually turned out to be a great seller for us years ago. Uh, It was called "Sadistic Mother-in-Law." There's truth to that. (laughs) Yeah, but it's mother-in-law catches her daughter-in-law. Cheating on her, her son. Basically, it's like a, a regression rule setup. So she, she turns this adult woman into a teenager with teenage rules. So she has to wear a uniform. She has a curfew. You know, she has to speak in a certain way. And, and it's, you know, whenever she breaks the rules, there is punishment with spanking and and, stuff. and it was it was primarily a spanking fetish video. Uh, there was actually a wash your mouth out with soap scene in it uh, and everything. But it's treating an adult woman as a child because of a transgression. And a couple of years after we we shot it and it was doing well, I happened to be looking through one of the platforms and they have changed the name to it from. Sadistic mother-in-law to sadistic stepmother-in-law because their algorithm kicked out mother and made it into stepmother. (laughs) Weird. In our old studio in Los Angeles, I built a beautiful church set, full confessional, pews, altar, the works. And and we shot some religious theme stuff in there. And one of the scenes in, that we shot there, I forget, it was called something like Father, I have sinned or something. And the platform algorithm changed it to Stepfather, I have sinned. But it's not a parental father. It's a priest father. <laughs>
0: And it's only getting worse with AI. It's only getting worse. And I mean, all the all the social media is run by AI. I've been banned more than once by Facebook, and I finally just gave up and just said, okay, screw it. But when it comes right down to it, AI is taking over the world. And, well, we can have a whole other conversation about that, but I want to try to stay somewhat on topic. So you and I could go on for hours about that kind of stuff. Do you have a fetish bucket list? Ah. Not really. Because you've done it all?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say I've done it all. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy is experiencing the fetishes that my friends and coworkers are into. So I'm sure there's some things out there that I haven't tried yet. I mean, one of the things, and I've come close a couple of times, I, I do want to do a successful fisting scene at some point.
0: Uh, yeah, I have two gay performers who specialize in fisting and they've both recently been interviewed and one's uh, one, they're both coming up very soon on, uh, on the show. So, Um, but for, for the most part,
1: uh, not really a bucket list, but one thing I do want to do is kind of broaden my, my selection of coworkers. It's never been anything intentional, but I, I want to do more work with with trans performers, more more buy stuff and more stuff with people of color and I, I just need to work harder to seek out the the performers that do that. But it's it's not just that, it's it's also, you know, trans performer who's a top, who's into fetish. So it it, it kind of chips away at the uh, the broad grouping. Steve and Crystal, I have been good friends for a long time. T-Awards are one of my favorite uh, weekends of the year. Yeah, I've heard it's great. Oh, It's just such a fun event with just amazing people. It's a lot more casual than the other uh, award shows, but it's just a whole bunch of really amazing people hanging out and having a good time.
0: I've heard it's great. I do want to go. That's one I definitely want to go to. I just have to line my events up carefully because living in thailand getting to the states it's not like oh i'm just going to go out for that i need to line more than one thing up or it doesn't make sense like i tried that for miami and uh it was painful (sighs) because i just went down and back and i did the same thing with cyprus well i mean i might just do the very same things if uh if i can't line them up with other things but it's better if you can line up two shows or Line up a pleasure trip with a business trip and all that stuff. So, I do, I do want to go to the TEAs though. So, how have you seen our industry change over your career? Oh, in
1: so many ways. Uh, when I first came in, for the most part, it was on the mainstream adult side, it was a handful of large companies. And then on the fetish side, it was a handful of small companies. And the biggest barrier to production was cost. I was after the, the film time, which was nice, but still everything was being shot on tape. You had to transfer, you had to edit. And, and now it's, it's like the capability is of just a phone to shoot video are amazing. And I say that the good thing is now anybody can be a pornographer. The bad thing is now anybody and be a pornographer. Oh boy, you're right. But it just, the the transition from the, the studio down to the large number of smaller, big and small production companies to now that just the whole creator world is just, I mean, for me, I've done some of the creator stuff. Uh, I've, I've shot some scenes for OnlyFans for friends of mine, but, I mean I love doing the huge productions. Those are always fun. But even the small product I I mean I like having some a couple of crew people there and you know, setting up nice lighting and multiple cameras and doing it the old school way. That's been one of the biggest changes. It's just now that just an individual can be a porn company.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about that. How do you think the explosion of the creator thing has affected the industry? Is it a good thing, a bad thing, or what? I think it's both. I think on the good side, it's
1: getting a lot of people that didn't have a voice before a platform to go out there and and be seen and to express themselves in their manner. You know, the bisexuality and the trans and, you know, the performers of color Because there's so many more opportunities now, there's so many more chances for them to go out and be seen. You're not relying on one production manager doing casting for one company. And if you're not what they have in mind, then you just don't get to come and play.
0: What I've noticed is there's so many, for instance, BBWs who are gaining massive success just as an example. okay, not to mention trans. Because not all of the platforms are that friendly to trans just for fans is is, is real friendly to trans and to and to gay because it's owned by a, a you know, LGBTQ plus person. But, yeah, I've noticed all the BBWs now that are showing up at the creator shows. And it's like, wow. And you look at the creator platforms and they're all over the place and they're all over Twitter and they're doing well and they're making money and they're amazing performers.
1: I've got uh, several friends that are are larger women and they are beautiful, they're smart, they're talented, they they get great ideas. Yeah, we've had quite a few on the show. And they're fun to work with and you know they there's a place for them in our world. And I'm glad that they're they're finally getting access to that place
0: because they deserve it. Yeah, because really, before that, the studios had an idea. It was the the blonde with the big boobs, and that really shut out 95% of the people. Now there's more niches. Obviously, Fetish is a lot bigger on those platforms. I mean, Clips for Sale obviously started that. That was where Fetish used to pretty much survive, and now it's available on all the other platforms. So. That's a good thing. What do you think are the biggest issues that are facing our industry today?
1: Uh, the biggest issues, uh, number one is the whole anti-porn movement. <laughs> yeah. There's the censorship angle. There's the banking angle. There's the just anti-any type of sexuality or your type of sexuality. So, I mean, we're, we're fighting with, Banks to to keep access to to banking. We're, we're fighting you know censorship battles just to keep you know the rights to put the content out there. Uh, we're fighting with with platforms to be able to do the kind of content that we want to do and that our fans have already shown us that they're they enjoy and they're interested in and they want to buy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, how about all the HID laws? Oh, the, the age verification.
1: Yeah, that's – it's a great idea poorly
0: executed. They mean to poorly execute it.
1: Oh, I, I, I didn't say it wasn't intentionally poorly executed. Because <laughs> if you talk to anybody, just about anybody in our, our industry, and we all agree, we don't want kids watching our stuff. Number one, kids don't pay. Uh, I mean, they, they shouldn't be watching it for a number of reasons, but also – even if you were kind of ambivalent on what age a person should be allowed to view porn, the reality is that you're not going to make any money off you know, a 15, a 16, even a 17 or 18-year-old.
0: Nope, not after the chargeback.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, even with a, without the chargeback, they, they're, they're so used to getting it for free that they're not a paying customer anyway.
0: They're going to gravitate to the tubes for sure.
1: Yeah, they gravitate to the tubes. They gravitate to the the file lockers, to the, the swapping services and stuff. You know, it's, it's the digital version of, oh, Jim down the street got his dad's Playboy and I'm going to take it home tonight and you can take it home tomorrow and you'll just pass it around till the pages fall out. I never gave mine up, by the
0: way. <laughs> and it always had the Sports Illustrated cover on it. Ah. Uh, <laughs> That always worked. That always worked. That's until Mom found my stash. But anyway, see, my
1: stash was actually my dad's business partner's stash,
0: because <laughs> uh, my
1: my dad was a salesman and he had a business partner, and their office they were on the road most of the time, uh, out making calls. But they had an office where they kept you know product and and catalogs and did billing and all that stuff. And so once a week on Fridays, my dad's partner. Would would come to the office and they would take care of all their office stuff. Uh, and I discovered probably a a far too young age, uh, that his collection in his, his desk drawer, which then whenever he wasn't around, I sort of adopted.
0: Of course. How old were you? Uh,
1: I was probably, I'd say 13 or 14 when I first found it. That's about the right age to get
0: corrupted. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's when most of us get, you know, start to go down that road. So Mm -hmm. it's a good thing. (laughs) Look at where you are today.
1: I'm trying to think of any hustler, but there were, he had a couple of other ones, uh, some of the early editions of uh, Cherry and and some stuff that had more of the fetish stuff. And that's where I discovered the fetish content.
0: Interesting. Interesting. We see where it began. So how do you feel fans can help the industry? They need to speak up. They need to support
1: us. They a, they need to listen to us when we say, hey, this is a problem that needs to be addressed.
0: But do you hold on a second? Do you think we're we're properly addressing them?
1: I think some people are and I think some people aren't. I mean, someone who, who is excellent at it, uh, Sherry DeVille, she gets a message out to the fans, on the problems that we are facing, better than anybody I've ever seen. But there are also a—I mean, there are a handful of other performers that are writing for outlets like Wired and Rolling Stone and and Vice that are getting the message out. But we need more of it, and we need the people who have membership sites to tell their members. We need the the people with the OnlyFans to tell their subscribers, "Hey, listen." This is the stuff that me and my friends are facing. These are the problems we're having. Banks are being very difficult to us. They're shutting us down because of what we do, what you like to watch us do. Platforms are restricting what we are allowed to do. And some of that stuff is the stuff that, I know that you have bought from me in the past. And if you don't speak up, if you don't get our backs on this, then you're not going to get to see the stuff that you want to see.
0: Maybe that's something that the the FSC should be encouraging us to do. I think that would be a good plan. Yeah, Mike Stabile's coming up again soon. I'll be interviewing him. Uh, I mean, here we're in September. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when it'll run. It's probably going to be after the calendar flips with my backlog right now. But um, I'm going to be interviewing Mike tomorrow. So, yeah, I'll, I'll ask him about it. I've had him on once before, and I did a two-parter with uh, with Allison Bowden as well. Both excellent people, and I, we're very fortunate to have them doing what they're doing for us. They're they're fantastic. They're really fantastic. Oh, I love what they're doing. So, what's the secret to a successful BDSM relationship?
1: You mean a personal relationship?
0: Yes. Uh
1: communication from the very be- beginning. Uh, it's expressing what you like, what you don't like, how you like things, how things feel. After we went out and, and played, my mistress would, would have me write a letter that was basically like a follow-up. It's like she wanted to know what I enjoyed, what I w- didn't really enjoy, how I felt about various things, how I'm feeling two days later. But it's it's constant communication honest communication. Don't say what you think your partner wants to hear, but tell them really how does it hurt? Is it a good hurt? Is it a bad hurt? Can you take more of this? Do you really wish you would back off? You know, is something not working for you, but maybe, you know, you'd be okay if you try this instead, but it's, it's just nonstop communication from before, you know, the scene to, in the scene to after the scene. And then, you know, if you were in a, more of a full-time relationship rather than just a, a dating or,
0: or just a play relationship. I think they call that a 24-7-365.
1: Well, but it's it's not necessarily 24-7-365 fetish. I mean, D and I have been together for 25 years now.
0: Well, congratulations.
1: Thank you. I mean, there there are times when the fetish and the BDSM is the farthest thing from our minds, you know, especially with COVID and with workloads and stuff. And and it's like, you're not thinking about playing or getting tied up or anything. You're thinking about, okay, somebody has to do the dishes because this is getting (laughs) out of hand and we don't have anything to eat (laughs) off of anymore. And Somebody has to go and get dog food because they're looking at us with those cute little faces and they're starving. And it's just the the day-to-day stuff. I mean, the communication is still the key there, too.
0: I think it's a key to any relationship. So how do you feel about the portrayal of fetish and BDSM in the mainstream? There have been some
1: really good hits and there have been some really bad misses. One of the movies I really enjoy was Secretary. And I thought that was a pretty good portrayal. But I bet Schroeder's Maîtresse is an excellent portrayal. There's a British film called Kinky Boots that's fantastic and so funny. But then you also get into things like Fifty Shades and, you know, the various, I call them the frat boy movies, where they use a fetish or a dominatrix as a joke.
0: Yeah, more of a, more of a prop, right?
1: Yeah, well, as either a punchline or a setup for a joke. That's the kind of stuff that bothers me. I thought the original CSI series had a character named Lady Heather that I thought was fantastic because they showed the real-life side of her. They showed respect for the fetish side of her as well. She was never looked down on because she was a professional dominatrix. She was never you know made fun of for it or mocked or thought less of. It was just that was her job. They treated her exactly the way they treated a chef or a showgirl or a pit boss or an auto mechanic or any of the other professions that they portrayed on that series. As a human being that does something as a job, And
0: that's what they are. Well, of course, of course, we know that. We know that everyone works in this industry is also a human being, but unfortunately, many outside don't.
1: Yeah, and then the the other thing is, is just the misconceptions about BDSM and fetish in general. That it is, if it's actual BDSM, it's all consensual. It's all discussed. You go out and you learn. You take classes. You practice. I know people you know, they get a new whip and they will whip a pillow for 6 months until they know exactly how that whip feels in their hand and can hit little tiny spots on that pillow at will because it's not a game it's something where somebody can get seriously injured if you don't know what you're doing and if you don't take it seriously but before they will ever you know use it on a human they will spend months Just making sure they know exactly how that piece of equipment is going to act in their hand. If it's non-consensual, then yes, that is abuse, but that's not BDSM. That's an abusive relationship, and it's a completely different thing.
0: No two ways about it. Solid line between the two. So anyone that follows you online knows that animals are very important to you. That's something we definitely agree on. We have six dogs, as my listeners well know. One of them sleeping on his sofa next to me here. So tell us more about that. I mean, I grew up with
1: dogs and cats. Uh, I was actually just back visiting my mom and there were three deer in the yard. We share this planet with these creatures. It's not our planet that they happen to live to hang out on it's everybody's and we share it and we have no right to take away their right to share the planet with us but like i said i grew up with dogs Uh, i went up a stretch from the time i went off to college until i met d where i didn't have a dog just because i i knew that i couldn't properly take care of it and give it the life that it should have just between my work schedule, my travel schedule and everything I was doing. And then once I met Dee, uh, she had two dogs that I adopted with her immediately. And, you know, Foster and Bundy were like our kids. Yes, I know how that is. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And in the, the 25 years we've been together, we've now had 10 dogs together. Currently have two. Only two. Uh, two is a good a good number unless you've got like a farm or something.
0: No, we don't have a farm we just have a have a lot of animal hair around. <laughs>
1: oh we believe me we've got that we've got two but one of them is 95 pounds and the other is 70 pounds. so
0: we've still dogs. got a lot of dog here. yeah, you do and you have a, get a lot of dog food. <laughs> oh yeah
1: we're the only people I know that meal prep for our
0: dogs we do too. We've had to take uh, the two boys, the two older boys off of the fresh protein because they've got some kidney problems. So now they're on on a special kibble, but uh, ooh, that shit's expensive. I'll tell you why, especially imported to Thailand. Oh, God. But, you know, you got to take care of your kids. And when we saw the kibble itself wasn't good enough and we got the wet stuff and that also is quite expensive, but um, they're very important. A couple of ours had, over the years have, have- passed from cancer,
1: and we started thinking, yeah, you know, we're doing everything that we can for them, and, you know, maybe we should be getting them some better food. Not that what we were feeding was bad, but we could do better. So we looked at some of the, the services, and like I said, you know, Stanley's 97 pounds, Fiona's 70, and to feed them like a fresh food service would be over $400 a month. It's like, we love them, but
0: we can't afford that. Oh, yeah, we get frozen fresh chicken breast with rice and vegetables. And
1: yeah, if Fiona's allergic to chicken. But we started looking at the what was in the, the various meal services. because they all list their ingredients on, on their websites and everything. So, and it's like, this isn't that hard. So once a week, we get four pounds of salmon, three sweet potatoes, two boxes of couscous and a pack of spinach. We cook it all up in a big pot and we parcel it out into little plastic containers and freeze a bunch of them and then just bring them out as we need them to keep it from going bad in the fridge because we made that mistake early on. That salmon can get awfully ripe smelling uh, about six days in.
0: Salmon will go bad, but so will the chicken. You know, the chicken does the same thing. So sometimes we give them tuna. The expensive water packed, of course. Ooh. <laughs> Fancy. Fancy. Got to, man. He got to. They're, they're, yeah. they're special creatures. That they are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Jimmy, I'd like to thank you for being our guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk, and I hope we'll get a chance to do this again soon.
1: I hope so, too. Thank
0: you for having me. You are fantastic. Thank you. My broker tip today is part two of what to do to make your site more valuable for when you decide to sell it later. Last week, we talked about converting traffic and improving user experience make a good offer. If you're selling something and the offer isn't good, you won't make money. It's plain and simple as that. And if your offer is to contact you or to get more information, then make the offer attractive and easy to understand. If you're selling something, make buying easy. Show them an easy way to buy and then leave. Help them by making suggestions on what to buy. Amazon.com is the best at this. They always have suggestions on what to buy, based on your buying and browsing history. They use AI to do this. There are AI engines available these days at a modest cost. Look into this if you can. Don't clutter up your site with unnecessary items, buttons, and images. Keep it as simple as possible. The best and most successful sites are the simple ones, the ones that lead you to take the action you'd like them to take. It's not that hard. Just remember, when you're putting together any site, Try to think through the buying process like a human being. Whatever you do, don't turn over that process to your designer. Don't just say, build me a website. What you'll get out the other end will not give you what it is you're looking for. Give them as much direction as possible and make it easy for them to build a site for you that makes your business succeed. Next time, we'll be speaking with elite companion Amy Taylor. And that's it for this week's Adult Site Broker Talk. I'd once again like to thank my guest, Jimmy Broadway. We'll be off next week for the holidays. Happy holidays to all. Talk to you again next time on Adult Site Broker Talk. I'm Bruce Friedman.